Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. Esther, not the easiest one maybe to find. And so if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 492, I believe it is, and uh, follow along with me there. We're going to study the book of Esther all summer long. So it gives us an opportunity to learn a little bit about who this wonderful young lady was. Uh, the title of this series is The Book of Esther, The Providence of God on Display. This is part one entitled The Party and the Pageant. And I'm going to read almost two chapters. So uh, that's a lot, of, a lot of scripture reading. My sources come from Mervyn Brenneman's New, New American Commentary on Esther, Ian DeGuid, his uh, commentary on Esther, Derek Prime's Unspoken Lessons About the Unseen God, also a commentary on Esther, a message by David Strain, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and a message by Bob Deffenbaugh, his studies uh, entitled Miss. Persia. So please stand with me. And again, if you don't want to stand for two chapters, it's a little bit of stand if you're not able to. Uh, otherwise, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we will read chapter 1 and into chapter 2, most of chapter 2, um, into verse 18. So listen to this is the Word of God. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the, of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, that's a long banquet. That's six months. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So that's a shorter banquet, lasting seven days. Okay, so get that picture. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people. This is now not just the important people. This is all the people. Uh, from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zathar and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. 
She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, and only against the king, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Chapter 2, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shasgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Ahahel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Please teach us your truth and open our hearts to receive it. I pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Of all the books of the Jews, this is the most favorite of the Old Testament, the most favorite book of the Jews. And our text obviously is a long one with reading two chapters, but as a narrative, I think it helps us to set the story. Esther was her Persian name, and she's actually named Hadassah. But we don't know that, since in the mind of everyone, she is the girl from Persia. She is an orphan. But thanks to her cousin Mordecai, who was more like an uncle, she has been well cared for. According to our text, she is beautiful in form and in face. In other words, she is physically beautiful, and whether she knows it or not, she's about to become Miss Persia. Okay, before we get into our lessons for today, a little background might be helpful. Some trivia. Esther is one of two Bible books named after a woman. One of two Bible books named after a woman. And the other one is... Thank you, Ruth. Yes. Esther is one of two Bible books where the name of God is not mentioned. The name of God is not mentioned. What's the other one? Song of Songs. Song of Solomon, which we're studying this summer, that Bo and Lindsay are teaching. Esther contains 167 verses. God is not mentioned, but Persia's king is mentioned 190 times. So, again, Hebrew scholars have found God's name mentioned four times in acrostic form in the Hebrew text. Sort of like a a code for the discerning reader. But the most important thing to remember is the main lessons about Esther are about God. Now, that seems strange to us. The premise of this book is that whenever God seems to be most absent in our lives, that's when he's most present. I want you to think about that. There's times in your life you face them already. You're going to face them again when God feels very far away. And we think God is not present. But the Bible affirms that when God seems absent, he is very present in our lives. So scripture sometimes doesn't mention God explicitly so it can highlight the invisible hand of God's providence. His behind the scenes work on our behalf. 
The book of Esther is the best example of this. The story of Esther took place in the Persian Empire in the 5th century B.C. So, you know, get this in your timeline. It's the only Old Testament book in which the entire story takes place in Persia. Throughout the 5th century, the Persians ruled Palestine. You've got the book of Esther, then you've got Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and 2 Chronicles that all relate to this time period. The book will help us to understand how the dispersed Jews behaved after being forced out of their homeland in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were later defeated by the Persians. So, of all the conquerors of the Jews, and there have been many, the Persians stand out as the least evil and the least hostile towards them. A case in point is the decree that is issued by Cyrus in 539 B.C. that permitted Jews held captive in Babylon to return to Jerusalem Although very few actually did so. I mean, a lot of them just were comfortable, preferring instead to remain where they had settled. The king of Persia is named Xerxes. That's the great king of the Persians, the one prophesied in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. His Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. And it's kind of like, you know, the pharaoh in Egypt, Ahasuerus in Persia. His name meant he who rules over men. And that's what the king did. He ruled over men, and he certainly did that. He's known more as a commander of armies on the battlefield, and he and most of his brothers served as generals and officers in the army. Xerxes' throne was in Susa, a city that was surrounded by mountains and streams, Susa being the winter capital for the king. Located about 150 miles from Babylon, which is modern-day Iran, which had... He had defeated. It's renowned for its fruit. It's renowned for its flowers. And in particular, it's renowned for the lily that gave the city its name. I thought that was pretty interesting. So banquets or feasts are a significant feature of the book of Esther. The term actually banquet occurs 20 times in this book, 20 times and only 24 times in the whole Bible. So it's a very important feature of the book. And our story begins with two Feast or banquets given by Xerxes, the one that I mentioned that lasted six months long, 180 days, and that was for exclusive company. That was for his military generals and their families. And then there was the last one that lasted seven days, and that was really just attended by everybody in the province. So just about everybody in the province was invited. No reason is given for these banquets, but most commentators agree that they were something of a pep rally for the king. Kind of a way to celebrate the king and all of his glory and all those who lived in his kingdom to come and celebrate him. That was kind of what it was about. So let's look at three lessons this morning. Three lessons in the time that we have remaining. And the first is this. The danger. The danger of intoxication. The danger of intoxication. Sounds like an interesting lesson to start off with, but uh, part of the banquet was obviously the serving of wine. If you look at verse 8, it says, The king allowed the people to drink with no restrictions. You see, when you were at a banquet given by the king, you took a drink when the king told you to take a drink. And so in this time, in this banquet, the king said, hey, let, let, them, let them drink anytime they want to. So obviously, as we can read here, it, it got out of hand. Okay? The wine was flowing and flowing and flowing, and, and it got out of hand. So here's a question for you. Have you ever been intoxicated? And don't, don't, don't raise your hand, please. Uh. <laughs> but have you ever been intoxicated? 
You know, by the grace of God, I can stand here and say to you, I have not. And you say, well, that's because you're a preacher. No, 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 no. It has really nothing to do with it. I became a Christian at almost the age of 17, but by the age of 15, 16, when a lot of my friends were starting to drink, and I was trying a little bit of it, I saw those closest to me intoxicated, and it was really repulsive to me. People that I knew and loved getting intoxicated and not acting the same way, and I looked at that, and this is, again, God's common grace, I looked at that and thought, why why would you want to look like that? Why, Why would you want to act like that? Why would you want to do this? Why would you want to be out of control? And I saw friends of mine, family members that were out of control from time to time. So I grew up around a lot of social drinking, so it was not something that was odd for me. But for some reason, God protected me from that because he saved me within a year of of a time in which I could have, going into my senior year, done a lot of things that was not going to be good. So being intoxicated is not always a pretty sight, which is why scripture is clearly opposed to the abuse of alcohol. Scripture is not opposed to drinking, particularly in moderation. But sadly, many people cannot control their use of alcohol, but end up being controlled by it. You know, it's interesting that that we've talked about this subject already this year. Do you remember that? We talked about it in Timothy, because Timothy speaks to that. This is not a plan of mine to talk about this again. But I've noticed that through the years when God speaks about something and speaks about it again... It's for a reason. Somebody here needs to hear it. So Xerxes is a prime example, an ancient Greek historian from the Persian Empire named Herodotus, who was clearly no fan of the king. He wrote that Xerxes had a very bad temper. He had a very bad temper. It's been my experience that if you mix alcohol with temperament, you get similar results. So it's really no surprise that Xerxes was a mean and angry Drunk. You know, isn't that funny how some people respond that way? You know, some people, when they get drunk, they're mean. They're angry. Some people are the life of the party. So, again, everybody's different. So, to recount our story, King Xerxes held two banquets at the conclusion of the second banquet, the seven-day one. Our text says the king was in, quote, high spirits from the wine. That's in verse 10, chapter 1. Another translation of verse 10 says this. On the seventh day, when the wine had gone to the king's head. And then another one says, the king's heart was merry with wine. So basically, this is to say the king was not in his right mind. And as a result, he actually proposed a foolish thing. The king ordered the seven eunuchs who served him to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. In order to display her beauty before the people and before the princes. Why? Well, it was an ego thing. She was, you know, his trophy. And he wanted to show her off. She was beautiful to look at. And so the queen responded, absolutely not. No way. She knew what was going on at that party. She wasn't about to subject herself to that. And and as to why Queen Vashti refused to appear before the king, I mean, there's lots of different suggestions of why. I mean, maybe she was busy with her own responsibilities because she had her own banquet going on. Maybe she had better sense than to appear before a drunken king and a drunken crowd. Maybe because she knew that strangers were really not supposed to look at the beauty of the queen, in particular, on a celebration like this. And I wonder, would the king have asked the queen to do this if he had been sober? I also wonder, if the king had been sober, would he have gotten so angry When she refused. 
You need to know that the Bible gives many warnings about the dangers of excessive drinking. At the same time, the Bible's primary drink, wine, is mentioned throughout the Bible as one of God's wonderful gifts. Yet whenever it's taken to excess, it can be extremely dangerous. No wonder the Bible constantly warns about the danger and the sinfulness of drunkenness. So, look with me at a few passages. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs, middle of your Bible pretty much. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Now turn to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And then Ephesians 5 verse 18, which says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, which is excess. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So, basically, the Bible's teaching is that anything taken to extremes is always unhealthy, sometimes just plain awful. We need to be careful of anything that will turn us from the gracious control of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, whether it's alcohol, whether it's the love of possessions, the lure of wealth, or preoccupation with the cares of this life. That's lesson one. Lesson number two, the danger of rash judgments. The danger of rash judgments. Verse 12 in chapter 1 says, When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. To embarrass a powerful man like King Xerxes was no small thing. His trophy wife, for lack of a better term, has so embarrassed the king in the presence of the entire populace that he is completely unaware of what to do in such a case. I mean, nothing like social pressure in front of all your constituents, right? So the king is rejected by his queen, and let's just say he did not expect this. Uh, Proverbs 12, verse 16 says, Fools show their annoyance at once, but the pride, but the... Let's look it up. Let's look it up. I can't even read my own notes. Look up Proverbs 12. Look up Proverbs 12 with me. Because this is too good to go by it. Proverbs 12, verse 16. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. And, you know, I just don't think he was able to overlook this. And so he got really annoyed very quickly. And while still upset, he did what was customary. He consulted the experts in his kingdom in matters of the law and justice. And it says in verse 13, the wise men who understood the times. You've heard that before. It's kind of like the men of Issachar in First Chronicles. You know, those were the ones who understood the times. And so, again, they were the ones who had special access to the king, as verse 14 says. And basically what that means is they saw the face of the king. They were able to approach the king. And so their advice, since the queen had refused to appear before the king when she was summoned, the result had to be she can never appear before the king again. She has to be gone. Her position would be given, according to verse 19, to someone better than she. So Xerxes' advisors 
Think about this. From an Eastern culture, they saw women as inferior to men. They did. They saw women as very inferior to men and to be used by men. And so for Vashti to do what she did in this culture, I mean, even in our culture, this would be like, oh, that's not not smart. But in that culture, it's a wonder that she wasn't killed for it. So the advisors had a point. What Vashti had done would no doubt become known throughout the entire province. So, sure, there needed to be damage control, but, but what did Vashti's resistance really accomplish? Personally, she lost her position of power. She lost her position of prestige as the queen. She was stripped of her title, never to enjoy her position again. And here's what one of my commentators puts uh, about this. He says, her suffering freed no one, not even herself, and was ultimately a foolish gesture. So, the king wasn't the only one who acted rashly. The queen did as well. Now, we read verse 22, and I want to read it again. So look at chapter 1, verse 22 of Esther, and it reads this way. The king sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. I wonder how that went over in the province. I mean, I wonder how that would go over today. If a, if a declaration was issued about that, I doubt it would go over very well. I mean, what was actually achieved by all this huffing and puffing? My former pastor in St. Louis, Dr. Andrew Jumper, he used to have a saying uh, based on this book that, you know, may it be according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once they made a decision, it could not be revoked. It could not be undone. <laughs> and so that's basically what... Xerxes has done, he's put himself in a corner. I mean, how do you think it would go over in this state or this nation if the governor or the president issued a decree like that? Not very well, I'm sure. Decisions or pronouncements made in haste usually come back to haunt you, and this one certainly did for Xerxes. If we come to chapter 2, I'd like you to look at verse 1 again. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says this. Later. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. You know, any way you look at this, any way you read that verse, what does it spell? Regret. He sobered up and he thought about it. He didn't really like his decision. But it was done. So I would ask you, have you ever done something in haste? Have you ever done something... Rashly, and you regretted it later? You ever said something to your husband? Or said something to your wife? Or said something to anyone that you wish you could take back? Have you ever dug your feet in the sand in an issue and then later wished you could kind of take back that stance? Which is why Scripture tells the believer over and over again, according to Psalm 40, verse 1, I, I waited patiently on the Lord. And he turned to me and heard my cry. So we should wait upon the Lord. The danger of rash judgments. The danger of intoxication. The final lesson is the Lord is in control. And as we saw when chapter 2 begins, it starts with that word later. What's not indicated is how long later was. Do you want to know how long it was? Four years. Four years. Xerxes has been so busy trying to conquer Greece, he has had no time to replace his queen. fact is, the king was absent from his kingdom 
most of the time. So after exhausting the rigors of war in what turned out to actually be a disastrous expedition to Greece, the king is lonely now, and now he needs a queen. But since his decree was irrevocable, he knew he had no choice but to move on from Vashti. So, yes, he remembered Vashti, but it was time to move on to a new queen. Azurus said this once, and he was trying to conquer Greece, you know, and listen to what he said. This is just a, a kind of an insight into the king's mindset. He wrote these words, In this short life there is no man, either among these or others, so happy that he should not often and more than once be in such a position as to prefer death to life. The misfortunes come and diseases rage, which makes our life appear so long, though it is so short. That was what the king said. Imagine that a king with so much wealth could get so down in spite of all that he possessed. It's just another reminder of the words of Jesus, where Jesus said, Life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Yet, for the king, it it really did. And so now we come to the beauty contest, and imagine this. The king wasn't choosing a queen based on noble birth or aristocratic background. No, the king was choosing his new queen completely based on beauty. It was about, you know, it was about who's the prettiest. And so Esther, she was beautiful. The great Jewish historian Josephus says, quote, she surpassed all women in beauty. Rabbis later on maintained that Esther was one of the four most beautiful women in history. Along with Sarah, Rahab, and Abigail. Esther 2.7 says, This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so orphaned at some point in her early life, she's raised by her cousin Mordecai, who after adopting her as his own, appears to have been completely devoted to her. This is a young woman who as an orphan has known tragedy, she's known loss, she's worked hard to accommodate herself into the pagan culture of this foreign land. So like the king, Esther has two names, which would remind us that Esther, the pretty Persian girl, also belongs to the people of God in exile. And she no doubt struggles with the question that you and I should struggle with. To which world do we belong to? To which world do we belong to? As the people of God, we belong to a heavenly world. A world that's not here. But yet we are called by God to live in this world and to make a difference in this world. Esther is about to find out, as we'll see in the weeks to come, she's about to find out that her life is going to change forever. Verse 8 of chapter 2 tells us Esther is taken into the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who is in charge of the harem. All right, now don't you think about that term harem. It should be a term that's familiar to, to many of you, which means that Esther is the victim of sexual exploitation. Imagine you were Mordecai and you witnessed this young daughter... That you love as your own, being taken away by the king's men to live in the harem as one of his concubines. In spite of all this, the Bible tells us that God is at work, always, accomplishing his purposes, his redemptive purposes. In saving his people, we're going to see, in saving his people, the Jewish people, from eventual extinction. That's what we're going to learn. How does God build his kingdom? In such a way that God's, even, even God's enemies serve his purposes. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 
helps us to visualize the king's plan to find a, a new queen. And then verses 5 through 7 present us with a stark contrast of an orphan, a young woman, a Jew, abducted, as it were, into a life that she would never choose for herself. Yet in spite of all this, I'm here to say to you this morning that God is at work. God is at work. When you want to think that this world is out of control, I want you to remember Esther. Because God is always at work. Esther, a woman of weakness, a woman of brokenness, a woman at the mercy of the political powerful elite. And yet here she is, Esther, preaching the gospel to us this morning. She shows us Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who seemingly is at the mercy of his enemies. He's stripped, he's beaten, he's nailed to a Roman cross, and it all looks so awful. But he does all that for our salvation. God is at work. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. And let's read this verse out loud. It's underneath your outline. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So remember, when nothing seems to be happening... God is at work accomplishing His purposes. And if you feel like whatever it is that you're dealing with is is out of control or in the hands of other people, don't you believe that for a second. For the believer, God is always on the throne. And He is at work for His people and their good. Let us pray together. Father God, thank you for this wonderful story of Esther. And as we study it this summer, I pray that you would give us insight to applications for our own lives Thank you for the things that you've taught us today. And Lord, if we're not a believer, I pray for anyone in this place that does not trust you, Lord, as their Savior, as their Lord. I pray that you would open their hearts, Father, that you would call them to yourself, that they might come to you in trust and faith because of your work in their heart right now. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness as the God who has a plan. And we submit to your plan through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen.